Greetings, dear listener. I'm Ian McKenzie, one of the co-hosts of this live series, The Pandemic is a Prism, which aims to bring a mythopoetic lens to bridge divided worldviews. This series of 12 conversations ran from Maybon in September to the solstice in late December 2021. Each week, listeners were able to join my co-host Zamir Danji and I live alongside our guests for an emergent session that explored the pandemic from a multitude of angles. After each session, Zamir and I recorded a recap to harvest the key insights. We are now happy to release the entire series as a podcast, available to all as a gift. If you would like to access the original videos of the conversations, as well as order the forthcoming book, head over to agatheringofstories.com slash pandemic to learn more. And now, enjoy this session of The Pandemic is a Prism. Welcome. Welcome to all of you online tuning in to this special solstice conversation of the pandemic is a prism. Uh, I am Ian McKenzie, uh, one of the co-hosts of this series. I'm 
I'll be doing this solo, uh, this conversation uh, today for the solstice, but um, it's beautiful to have a, a, an approach to this moment from good brother Zamir on the handpan. And um, before I introduce our two guests who uh, are standing by uh, for this conversation, um, I think it's worth just to spill a few words um, before, before they land here with us. Uh, one of these men, Charles Eisenstein, I've had the great pleasure of um, first coming into contact with a number of years ago uh, uh, at the time of his first book, which or wasn't the first, but was the first that I read called The Ascent of Humanity, um, of which was a 400 page or so um, epic that uh, really redefined how I understood this cultural moment as well as uh, the momentum that um, I think so many of us find ourselves in. Um, and since then, I've been able to collaborate a number of times with Charles, both through his book, Sacred Economics, of course, and um, many other ways since. And more recently, I've connected with the work of uh, the other guest that will join us here today, Paul Kingsnorth. Um, I had actually touched on his Dark Mountain uh, project earlier uh, as well, and was again taken um, by much of what he was divining then. Um, and more recently, of course, I've connected with his work with the Vaccine Moment series, of which there's now three parts that have been published, um, as well as the, his uh, series of essays now called Divining the Machine as well, which um, again, all these links will be posted uh, in the chat afterwards. Uh, but also, there seemed to be some, some divining uh, that both of these men were doing that um, I felt the need to instigate this conversation here for the pandemic is a prism in some ways as the, uh, uh, to coincide with the solstice and also as a, as a moment to really, uh, reflect upon what is, I mean, at least in the Northern hemisphere, the darkest time of the year as we, um, rekindle the possibility of light. And so, um, we go where we go on this journey. Um, and I'm delighted now to welcome both Charles and Paul to the stage. Welcome both of you. Hey Ian, hey Paul. Oh, you're muted there, Paul. Just uh, try it one more time. Okay. Technology, here we there go. We My favorite <laughs> thing. Welcome Paul. Thank you, welcome, thank you. It's good to be here. Mm. Um, so a few words to those of you who are tuning in live as well before we really dive in is, um, uh, we're going to open the conversation. Uh, there'll be some weaving um, here first, and feel free to leave comments um, on the on the chat as well. Uh, comments and reflections, questions, and uh, at a certain point, I will uh, begin to start weaving those in um, where it makes sense. Um, and again, feel free to though, just you know keep a commentary going uh, as you go. Um, and so, yeah, my first um, curiosity, I think, for uh, maybe we'll start with Paul is. I mentioned, uh, you know, your series, The Vaccine Moment, of one part one, part two, and three that have recently come out. And I would love to just hear a little bit about what was it that spurred you to write that series um, in the sense of the context of your own work? What was it that, you know, called you forth to be willing to, to speak, uh, you know, about that, this issue in particular? Yeah, well, the answer really is, um, I suppose the answer is seeing what was going on in the world um, and it seems to have happened to a lot of other people as well particularly over the last month or six weeks including maybe Charles uh, I don't know but we both seem to have stuck our heads above a parapet at a similar time interestingly 
Um, I mean, look, what did it for me was watching the beginning of segregation in society. I mean, look, I live in Ireland, so we have vaccine passports here. We've had them for six months. Now, I'm not vaccinated myself, although plenty of my friends are. And I don't have any particular opinion about whether anybody should be vaccinated. It's a personal choice and it makes it, you know, it depends what makes sense for you. But um, there was a very, very clear point at which, or maybe it wasn't a clear point, maybe it was the beginning of a, of, a, of a longer change in which the narrative around this conversation about COVID started to change quite significantly. Um, and at the beginning, when we had lockdowns and we had mask mandates and we had emergency measures and all sorts of stuff coming in from all sorts of governments around the world. They were all things that everybody could legitimately argue about. Was, was it right to have a lockdown? Did it work? Does it work in Sweden? Should, it, should we do it here, et cetera, et cetera. All these conversations were going on. But whatever you thought about any of that, everybody was in the same boat. And what changed, um, certainly it changed in my country about six months ago and it started to change here when the vaccines came in, um, was the segregation. It was the passports, it was the mandates in particular, it was seeing in Austria, particularly the thing that tipped me over the edge was seeing unvaccinated people locked down when vaccinated people were not locked down. And at that point, doubts I was having already started to turn into very loud alarm bells. Um, because as I say, whatever you think about the vaccine, whatever you think about COVID, those are legitimate things to have conversations about. I'd, I, you know, I'd rather not talk about them to be honest <laughs> we'd all rather not be talking about blooming vaccines and i'm not a doctor so i don't know any about uh, anything about that and that's a personal choice but once you get to the situation where you've got where you are now where not only do you have these very clear segregations of people according to their medical choices but you have an ongoing demonization of people who are not vaccinated encouraged by authorities okay encouraged very openly by many people in authority then you are in a really nasty place. And it doesn't matter at that point what you think about vaccination or whether you've been vaccinated, by the way, because plenty of people who have been vaccinated are extremely disturbed by what's going on as well. But this kind of divide and rule tactic or whatever the hell it is, is not anything that should be happening in a society that wants to hold itself together. It's not justified by the science, okay, because the vaccines don't prevent transmission of the virus. We know that. But even if it was, even if it was, you don't get to do this kind of thing without a debate in a country that calls itself a democracy. And it was very clear to me that that was wrong. Um, and I just, I'm a writer, so what could I do? Not write about it. I could, it wasn't feasible at some point. I had to, I had to just say something. Uh, and I'm glad I did, whatever the consequences of that are, because it is just very frightening to me what's happening. And as I say, it's not, for me, a particular debate about a medical technology. It's a debate about the systems that are arising around it very quickly now. Mm. Um, and that, you know, I'm hardly the only person to brought that up, but for me personally, it was something I had to finally say something about. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Paul and Charles. Yeah, for you, yeah. I think a similar sense that you 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 know you wrote the coronation, of course, early days of the pandemic, which I would say, at least from my sense of tracking your work for some time, the the range of that piece, that piece traveled felt very very far, um, and a lot of people that maybe hadn't connected with your work had found it. And other people too that you know hadn't tuned into your work were railing against it, and so there was something you you spoke to them. But even more recently, I've noticed a tone in your work as well, like a willingness to kind of poke your head up uh, further as a way and and speak on this. And again, I wonder for you, what is it that's spurring you forward? Well, I yeah, <clears throat> I, I've I tried uh, for a while what Paul said of like he said, well, I can't not write about it. Well, I tried not writing about it for quite some time. I had a, a so at the beginning, 
I, I wrote the coronation and a few other pieces about what was going on. One of the points being like these emergency measures that Paul was invoking here. Like I was like, these are not going to go away because they are a continuation and an intensification of trends that have been in progress for a very long time toward the, the migration of life online, toward I mean, we've becoming more and more distant from each other in a lot of ways, uh, government surveillance and so on, uh, the medicalization of life. <clears throat> so I, I, I did like blurt out all of that at the outset. The coronation, I wrote that like in the first month or two of the pandemic. And that established me as a suspect character. And I got quite a lot of criticism for it and including internal criticism, like, how do I know? Like, because some of the criticism is like, Charles, you are killing people with your writing by making them take it less seriously and making them uh, entertain doubts about lockdown policies and so forth. And so I went into this long gestation period of, of like, how do I really know what I believe is true? And, and, you know, exploring all of the ways in which I can never know, uh, at least in the sense of a correspondence with, of belief and objective fact. Um, so, so eventually, though, kind of like Paul, I got to this point of I could not keep my mouth shut anymore because I was so dismayed and alarmed by what was happening on a gut level, even to the point of I don't care if I'm provably right or wrong. This is just wrong. Uh, and, and so I stuck my head ab above the parapet again. I guess that was in, um, it was last summer uh, with mob morality and the unvaxxed, but I was leading up to it with, with some other pieces about um, Rene Girard, sacrificial violence, scapegoating, dehumanization, like all of these patterns that, that erupt uh, from time to time as genocide and, and uh, mob violence, witch hunts and so forth. So yeah, um, <coughs> I stuck my head above the parapet um, last summer and, and, you know, to this day, I mean, yeah, gosh, I mean, I never, I mean, ironically, the, the, the essay itself, uh, came true in my own experience as, you know, I was deplatformed and censored and, and denounced. And um, uh, to this day, like people are still like, Charles, I'm sick of you. I can't believe I used to follow you, you know, please unsubscribe and refund my, like all this kind of stuff. And, and you know, have you distanced yourself from Charles Eisenstein? I don't want to be on a podcast that he's been on, like that kind of stuff. Um, the, the, shunning of the unclean that is one of the deep patterns here so anyway um yeah and then and then um so I, but for a long time because of authentic and inauthentic doubt and also simply like fear of the mob i did keep my mouth shut until i just couldn't anymore uh and so now i've been witnessing other people who have maybe gone through a similar process and maybe Paul's one of them. But when, when Paul came out with his, um, with his, with his essay, the first of the series, I was like, yes, you know, here's, here's another one. Who's, who's, uh, 
because because you know everyone who doesn't like people who I respect as intellectuals and and writers if they don't say anything about it then I'm like oh gosh you know if they're not seeing what I'm seeing maybe I'm deluded so it, it feels affirming uh yeah. when someone like Paul or Glenn Greenwald has become vocal recently you know he's another one um so yeah it's like welcome to the club <laughs> well thanks for that I mean one of the things that I find is um, challenging for, let's say, those that I don't know, follow the narr the narrative of the capital N, is that um, they seem to have a really remarkably hard time faithfully rendering the other side. And again, this may be or may or may not be your experience, but this is what I found is that um, I can occupy sort of faithfully the concerns of the other side. I feel right. I can say, okay, I understand. Like I think that. If, if, you know, the science around this is correct and that um, the less people that get vaccinated, the more chance for mutations or the more chance of harm. Like, okay, I understand your concerns. Um, I may come to some different conclusion about them. But by and large, what I've found is it seems much more rare that that side is able to faithfully occupy the concerns of the, quote, other side. And there's something <coughs> to that, which I think also, like, distorts the capacity for uh, for, for coming to some sort of contact, but I also wonder for both of you and maybe Paul first is that, yeah, what have you found in terms of that, that dilemma, like being able to name, you know, with this thing, this narrative with a capital N, but it, it seems to be almost like those that occupy it, it's so pervasive that it's actually impossible to see, which is, again, it's a kind of, um, uh, it's a kind of privilege to occupy a, a, a narrative position, which is the, you know, the quote, <coughs> Yeah, it's a good question. Um, here's something really interesting. So I remember seeing an opinion poll in America a while back. In fact, there have been a few of these about how liberals and conservatives see each other. Uh, and Jonathan Haidt, the psychiatrist, has done quite a lot of work on this. Psychologist, sorry. Um, in, in his book, The Righteous Mind, I think he talks about this and in a few other places. And when they ask conservatives and liberals both to describe the position of the other team, Curiously enough, conservatives are much better at understanding liberals than liberals are at understanding conservatives. Now, I don't know quite why that is. He goes into a good deal of detail about that. But when liberals are broadly asked to characterize conservative positions, they're not really able to do it very well. But conservatives understand liberal positions. Now, I don't know whether that is because, broadly speaking, in America, liberalism is, is sort of dominant and conservatism is outside. I don't know. That might be wrong. And I, I presume it's different from place to place. Um, but it's quite interesting. Now, you know, the COVID division is not political in that sense. Actually, in fact, the interesting thing about it is that it seems to go right across political divides. But it is, to some degree, playing into or fitting into these pre-existing cultural divides that were there already. And I think that's part of the reason it's so vicious. Um, interestingly, I mean, I live in Ireland and we don't really have a culture war here of the kind that's going on in America and to some degree is going on in Britain as well. I mean, it, there might be a bit of it in Dublin amongst the students, but there's not much of it out in the countryside. So, um, you know, people have arguments about vaccination and you certainly get frowned on by many people if you're not vaccinated. But it doesn't feel like it's a giant existential culture war thing like, you know, Brexit or something like that. And it just strikes me that when you have that division, what you have very often, I mean, but certainly when, when you look at COVID, there's a mainstream narrative which we're, we're asked to accept. Um, and if you accept it, you don't really need to think about it very much. You just assume that it's true. You assume that what the media is saying is true and what the government is saying is true, and you might not like it. You might grumble about it a bit, but you broadly assume 
as you say, that the narrative is right. Okay, so you don't have to really question it very much. Whereas if you've gone outside the narrative and questioned it, whether you're right or not, okay, because because Charles accepts we could all be wrong about things, and 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 one thing that puts me on alert is anyone coming at me with any degree of certainty from either side. Actually, if, if somebody thinks they know exactly what's going on, um, that's probably probably something to be avoided but if you've gone outside the narrative on covid or anything else you have to think about it more and so you have to understand what the narrative is you've probably come from the narrative in the first place i mean in my case i i've drifted away from the mainstream narrative because i don't really believe much of it but i accepted it to start with mainly and there's still parts of it that i accept but if you're a dissident in any field you have to understand what you're dissenting against whereas if you're not you don't have to bother understanding the dissidents and if you're hostile to the dissidents because you think that they're dangerous then you're going to want to mischaracterize them deliberately. And I think there's, you know, there's obviously a mixture of deliberate mischaracterization and genuine misunderstanding, depending on who you're talking to. I mean, people who are very aggressively attacking people like Charles and me or anyone else who descends from the narrative, very often they're being extremely dishonest about the things that they do. You know, it, it, we all know what the characterizations are. You're a conspiracy theorist, you're a fascist, you're a whatever. You know, there's a list of things that they, that they come out with. There's an Irish... Uh, Irish journalist called Fintan O'Toole, very well-known journalist here, and he writes for the Irish Times, which is the sort of mainstream Dublin liberal paper. And he wrote a column of, a couple of weeks ago. It was appalling, actually. And he had, the headline was, um, there are three types of anti-vaxxers. There are paranoids, fascists, and what was the other one? Paranoids, fascists, and egomaniacs, he said. Uh, and then, then he went on in the column hilariously to explain that we had to listen to the concerns of anti-vaxxers, otherwise we wouldn't be able to... Um, to change their minds so i thought that was probably a bad start but i mean that's that's the kind of that's the kind of deliberate mischaracterization that you get from some people and every time somebody does something like that it just hugely inflames the conversation completely pointlessly and it's worth saying of course there are plenty of so-called anti-vaxxers who do the same thing right there are plenty of people on the other side who want to present the mainstream narrative as corrupted and the people who follow it as sheep or who haven't got minds of their own and all the rest of it but yeah, I think broadly speaking, if you if you dissent from any mainstream position, you have to understand it to dissent from it. Whereas if you're uh, if you're attached to it, you don't have to bother understanding those who who walk away. So yeah, there's that. But as I say, I think the pre-existing culture war divides in the West uh, that were there already yeah. have attached themselves to COVID, and and we've all kind of if you can if you can represent the people you didn't like anyway in the culture war as literally being people who might kill you. Right. Then you've got you've got double incentive to, to sort of push them out of the conversation. And that's the most frightening thing about this for me, this stuff that, you know, you and you hear this all the time. You know, you are literally killing people by not taking this vaccine. I mean, you might just be sitting at home in your little house, avoiding everyone and just minding your own business. But the fact that you haven't had a medicine means you're a murderer. Mm. Well, if you think people are genuinely murderers, then you can justify doing almost anything to them. And that's that's the disturbing thing. So. Yeah, it's like uh, what, we, what we very much need to do is put a big bucket of cool water on this whole conversation. <laughs> you know? mm. And um, but I don't know, I don't know whether that will happen or not. Mm. But that that's how it seems to me anyway. Mm. Thanks, Paul. Charles, yeah, I wonder what comes up for you in this question. Yeah, um, yeah, a few things were coming up. Um, first, this this uh, um, th this idea that that. You know the um, anti-vax, anti-vaxxers. I mean, I'm not even sure what I, I like to say vaccine skeptics, but because anti-vaxxers has become a pejorative term. Um, but and, and even the unvaccinated 
They are putting us all at risk. They are dangerous. They are some version of evil. So even if to even engage in a conversation with them does the public a disservice to give any kind of platform to them, uh, merely elevates their totally wrong ideas and gives them legitimacy. So, you know, they have to be shut out by any means necessary, which is a common thought form if you believe that what you're dealing with is evil. Because if they, if, if you are confronting evil, um, then anything that you do to defeat that party, the evil party, is justified because, the, because it's by definition, they're evil. So, so even not joining the chorus of condemnation makes you a suspect character as well, which is a very, um, it's very similar to what happens in situations of mob uh, hysteria, where if you don't join the mob, then you become a suspect character as well. And it also has uh, a reverberation with the, um, uh, this left idea uh, that silence is violence. So kind of parallel to that, sitting at home, as Paul was saying, and not getting vaccinated, well, vaccinated, well, you're not joining the good side. And if you're not joining the good side, then you are not doing everything you can to confront evil. So you, so, so I, I see like this common thread um, and I think that it, b between COVID ideologies uh, and other political ideologies, and it's not surprising that um, that there's more, that that the left generally has more affinity for COVID orthodoxy than the right. And I say this as like a lifelong leftist, okay. Uh, but I think that that the left, to a large extent, has been taken over by authoritarian ideas and tendencies um and and um and it's to the point where where i think that the left and right um that 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 rubric is maybe not even useful anymore i mean it's not actually that old it's only as old as you know the french revolution uh, before then there was no concept of left and right in politics and so maybe maybe we are maybe it's run its course anyway i'll i'll, I'll just i'll leave it at that for the moment you know what comes to me is that if the focus of the any conversation is on simply you know pro or anti vax then it feels like it's not it's not big enough to actually understand you know the larger forces at work um, which is what I've appreciated about, I mean, both the ascent of humanity and divining the machine. And just as an example, Paul, for, I posted, a, I think it was maybe part two in a group for the gathering of stories. And somebody wrote back basically saying that one, um, you know, just that this kind of thinking really just speaks to a just sort of undercurrent of paranoia. Uh, right. And but then they also spoke to things like, well, it's just the privileged, you know, or, who now are getting a bite of you know, losing privileges. And so, they, you know, that's at work. But it felt very focused on the individual. Like it felt it was looking at, say, you personally as a as a, your own perspective. And my response to that was like, OK, I hear you pointing to him, the author, but he's he's pointing at something. 
Like he's pointing at, and, and what about that thing that he's pointing at? And the person as well, you know, almost like grappled with that in a way that I felt was also sort of ingenuine with being able to see the thing that you were pointing at, which in this case, you know, the language of the machine um, has served that. And Charles as well in the sense of humanity is this divining of this like uh, undercurrent of something. And so, I mean, I'd love for you to speak, Paul, on, on again, what is it that you're divining there? And I mean, I get it. It's a, it's a 10 and 10 essay series so far. But um, could you make that visible um, to what is that divining that you're doing there? Well, um, I, I suppose that um, one of the reasons I'm speaking out, if you like, and as I said at the beginning, it's not about the vaccines. As you say, this conversation about vax versus anti-vax is almost a distraction, I think, actually. You know, as I say, the vaccine, these vaccines is not the vaccine. There are like lots of different ones in different places. Um, it's a type of medicine to deal with a type of illness. And, and we can argue about whether it's safe, effective, et cetera, et cetera, right? And people have been doing that for a long time. That's not the issue. If There's, there's a lot of other stuff that you could have conversations with around medical treatment for COVID. Um, the issue for me, as I said, is the systems, the technological authoritarian systems that are being justified by vaccination. And that's really what I've been writing about, not just in this little series I'm doing at the moment, but for all my life, actually. <laughs> the thing that concerns me most, and it's, it concerns me actually at an intuitive level, and I can argue about it and intellectualize about it and read a lot about it, but I can see it rising up around me in my life. And it's been rising up since at least the Industrial Revolution, if not since the Tower of Babel was written about in the Bible. You know, it's, it's a very old thing. And it's a technological system of control, which humans are very good at creating. And I call it the machine in this series I've written at the moment. It's not my terminology. Plenty of great writers like D.H. Lawrence and R.S. Thomas called it the machine as well, which is why I use it. Um, and it's a mechanistic technological control system that we are creating. And we have been creating for a very long time. And as Charles said earlier, the mechanisms for this were kind of all in place for a long time. And when you say things like this, this is when you get confused, accused of being a conspiracy theorist. Um, but as I said in the latest essay, there's no there's no conspiracy involved. You don't have to, to, to imagine an evil cabal of people doing something secret or deliberately uh, releasing viruses or whatever. I mean, this is simply the march towards uh, Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse. It's uh, it's the march towards the world that Silicon Valley are very, very openly trying to take us towards, which is a world in which we are literally chipped, digitally monitored, controlled, um, that we move into a giant system of technological management on a global scale. Um, and that this is the way, in the view of people who want to do this, that we can create a, a manageable, equitable, sustainable world um, in which we use technology to solve all of our problems, right? So these many of these people think they're well-intentioned, and undoubtedly they are. Um, and this kind of tendency towards what I call the machine is also inside all of us, okay? So we don't have to see it as the bad guys up there in Silicon Valley versus us, 99% of heroic warriors. I mean, we're all here with our smartphones and our internet connections, right? So this, this is appealing to us in many ways. But what's happened with COVID is that the vaccine in particular has been used or not used, it's just almost an opportunity to slot those systems into place. So the vaccine passports, for example, which you know have been planned for a long time, the EU had vaccine passports on the agenda since at least 2018. Vaccine passports tied to digital identity systems were being trialed in Bangladesh in 2019. This stuff has been out there for a long time. So along comes the pandemic. Everybody's wargamed this. Again, no conspiracy theory required. This is just what people thought they ought to do to tackle a pandemic. And so it slots into place. And so we've all got our smartphones, which are 
being used as, as basically tracking devices in our pockets anyway. It doesn't take much to put a QR code on to prove that you're clean. It doesn't take very much for that then to remain permanent, which I think it probably will, uh, and to become global, which is already happening. The WHO is already investigating how to um, harmonize all the QR codes in use and make, make them into a global access card and then you know then you're in the beginning of a digital id system and then you might be moving towards a social credit system and all the rest of it and again this stuff is all openly discussed no no conspiracy required it's the obvious next stage of where the digital society is moving and it leads to a world of the kind that which science fiction writers have been warning us about for a hundred years sometimes i wonder if you know the guys in silicon valley read all those science fiction books and thought they were supposed to be guidebooks rather than warnings um you know watch the matrix oh that looks like a good idea um, but, you know, this, this is not a new story. This is a story we know. This is where we're moving. Technological control. We, we, we give up a lot of freedom and in exchange we get safety and we get control, hopefully. And that's where we're going. And that's the, the pandemic has accelerated that enormously. It's given and created an opportunity for that to happen. And it is going to happen. And I'm, I, I agree with Charles. These systems are not going to go away. I don't think QR code scanning is ever going to go away now. Maybe you won't have to do it every time you want to go into the pub. I don't know, but you know, if you think you're going to to, to change it, you're not. Um, interestingly, actual passports, which have only existed for a hundred years, the ones we used to go on holiday with, were themselves introduced after the First World War. They were supposed to be a temporary measure, and they were made permanent, largely because of the Spanish flu as a, as a kind of a health and national security issue. Mm. So you know, we've we've seen this before, and and I think we're seeing it again. So it's an acceleration of that that wider issue of. A, a technological control society that we're moving very fast into now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd like to <clears throat> amplify a few of those points. Um, so yeah, <clears throat> like one reason, like like Paul, like I'm hesitant to actually debate about the minutia of vaccines and case numbers and asymptomatic transmission and all that stuff. Because for one thing, you know, I'm not the most qualified person to do that. But also by even stepping into that debate, I'm affirming the frame of the debate itself. I'm affirming that this is the thing that we should be talking about. But what gets left out when you focus on the safety and efficacy of these products is the entire context that even makes them thinkable or necessary or conceivable. It would be like um, saying, okay, like, when we, instead of talking about the whole agricultural system, let's talk about glyphosate and whether it is whether the costs outweigh the benefits. Well, if you take the system of industrial agriculture for granted, then it makes sense to argue about glyphosate and maybe we should replace it with another one that's a little safer. And, 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 but, but if you focus on that and then the next one, dicambra, and then the next one and the next one, then you're never going to question the entire system that makes something like glyphosate necessary to begin with. So I, I want to expand the conversation and talk about this kind of the stuff Paul's talking about, like the machine. Uh, and what does the machine do, or the mentality of the machine, when it is applied to human health, when it is applied to public health, when it is applied to society at large. If you accept the values and, and assumptions of the machine, then of course you're going to want to uh, reduce all of reality, including social reality, to a data set and then manipulate that data set to maximize certain metrics uh, because that's 
how that's what progress is. You bring more and more into the realm of quantity and control. And, and so this process, and I don't agree with Paul that it is inevitable. I, don't, I think, you know, like it's true that it's not going to stop on its own. It has tremendous inertia, but that inertia is also, there's a push, which is the ideologies and the mythology of our civilization, which goes back, you know, even before the Industrial Revolution. Uh, one of my big influences is Lewis Mumford, Lewis Mumford, the historian who um, wrote about the origin of the mega machine, he called it, in the ancient builder civilizations, which uh, pioneered the, um, the, the mode of standardization. They built a gigantic machine composed of human parts, actually, who performed standardized roles and whoever wielded that machine, i.e. the pharaoh, could perform superhuman feats. He could raise a gigantic you know, pyramid, uh, if indeed the pharaohs did build the pyramids, which is actually quite doubtful, but that's a different conversation. But, but you know, they could, they could, this was a, the, the, whoever wielded this machine had godlike powers. And so an ideology grew that someday as we replaced the human parts of the mega machine with mechanical parts, everybody would come to have godlike powers, not just the Pharaoh. And these godlike powers actually have been manifested, you know, to flying through the air, communicating instantaneously across the world. Like these were literally the powers of the gods, ancient mythology. So, so I'm just like painting this picture a little bit uh, because it illuminates just how big the transition would be to something different. It's the overturning of, of trends and meta myths that are thousands of years old. And so I think a lot of us can sense that this revolution that we are engaged in, you know, it's not just about restoring freedom of movement or restoring civil liberties or something like that. Uh, my, my, my challenge has been, you know, like I'm, I'm kind of more comfortable talking about the big arc of history and these, these philosophical ideas that can become rather abstract. And I enjoy talking about that. And it's kind of a safe zone. Whereas now it's like, okay, Charles, like we can talk about that all the time, but what about, you know, the, the people who are, what about like the systems that are being put into place right now? Like, don't you want to do something about those? So I've, I've that's why I've been, but I, I think that, that there has to be both. Like if we just talk about these narrow policies and, and we narrow the conversation to that, we're going to be fighting an endless war because we're fighting just the symptom while the generator of the symptoms continues unabated. Yeah. So yeah, Paul, I'm curious what what you know, how you na navigate the 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 yeah this, yeah it's yeah. a really good question. Um, I actually I'm, I'm a big fan of Mumford as well. Actually, I wrote about him in one of my essays last few months ago, and I was really also taken with the same image that he talks about a machine made of human parts. That's the phrase he uses, and that was how the pyramids were built. And of course, the industrial revolution enables us to replace slaves with oil. So that's effectively what we've done. And then oil brings plenty of its own problems, as we know. 
but it is the same machine. And Mumford's vision is that this machine kind of rises and falls throughout history. You know, it, it emerges and then it collapses and then it emerges and it collapses. It emerges in Egypt and then it emerges in Rome and then it emerges in the West in the 18th century. And it will fall again because it always does. But before it falls, it tries to gets to a point where it tries to take total control because as things as things start to crumble away ecologically culturally you know things really start to come apart which i think is clearly happening now um the the response of a society like that is to grip tighter um to try and try and use that way of seeing and that ideological uh, attitude if you like to, to to grip tighter and that's where we are i think and that's you know what we're trying to do with this disease we're trying to grip it as tightly as we can so that we can eliminate it uh, and who knows, maybe we will, although I doubt it. But look at the look at the damage being created in the meantime. I mean, look at the, the single minded obsession on uh, with, with with sort of getting the infection numbers down at the moment mm-hmm. is leading to, I mean, catastrophic stuff. I mean, there was a government report released in Britain today, actually, just to speak to uh, maybe that critic you were talking about there, Ian, which showed had, had they, they were delaying re- re- uh, re- uh, releasing it actually because it, it demonstrates pretty clearly that the lockdowns and the general restrictions have had a worse effect on minorities than anybody else hmm. which is not very surprising because actually privileged middle class people who work from home are basically fine here right <laughs> i mean they are okay whereas actually it turns out to be the ethnic minorities and actually the the, the, the gay community and people who are in vulnerable positions anyway who are hit hardest by this. And it's also in, in America and in Britain, actually, often people from ethnic minorities who are most reluctant to get vaccinated for all sorts of complicated reasons, right? So for whatever the reason, that those are the facts. So you've got that, then you've got obviously all the economic uh, knock, knock-on effects of the lockdowns and the rest of it. So, you know, in, in an attempt to grip tight this particular problem, there's an enormous amount of kind of uh, collateral damage going on which is going to play out over a long period of time and one of the things that's playing out is the huge social division that's created by you know dividing the the vaxxed from the unvaxxed at the moment and there's hundreds of thousands of people on the streets around the world at the moment about this and we don't know where this is going to go right even if they manage to get a grip on covid tomorrow it's you know all of this is going to resonate for a long time mm-hmm. so you i mean I, I agree with you charles it's the same it's keeping that balance between looking at the big picture so that you can try and explain what's going on and actually taking a stand in the moment and also taking a stand in the right way. That's really challenging. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, how do you take a stand with some love or tolerance or understanding of people who who see differently and also understand that you're not taking a stand against another group of people, you know, you're taking a stand for something. Uh, And I think that's probably the key. Actually, you're, you're taking a stand for something rather than against something, let alone against a group of people, because, it's just, you know, it's a scapegoating time and uh, it would be easy enough to scapegoat the people who we believed were scapegoating the unvaxxed and then we're all doing, <laughs> we're all fighting the war. And actually you have to be able to somehow take a stand with your feet on the ground and say, this is what I believe in and this is wrong. And I stand against this while also just remaining human in some way, you know, it, mm-hmm. and, and understanding that, also understanding that everyone is mostly confused. I think this is really important. You know, there's a there's a there's a very loud minority of people on various sides of this debate who think they're certain about things, whether it's the vaccines are unsafe or the vaccines are safe or lockdowns work or lockdowns don't work, etc. And we all know what the debates are. Most people, in my experience, aren't really sure what's going on. And I'm not really sure what's going on about a lot of this as well. And my, my intuition, I feel like I feel the same as Charles. I'm, I don't I'm not sure about the vaccines. I haven't taken one, but I'm not sure about them. That's why I haven't taken one, actually. <laughs> Not because I'm sure, but because I'm cautious. But I am sure, I'm very sure, intuitively, about these systems of segregation and control. So that's what I talk about. 
but I'm not going to pretend I'm sure about medicine. But those are those are separate things, and, and and we have to not confuse them. So it's take a stand, whilst also, as Charles says, be aware of the kind of very big historical forces at play, <laughs> but also understand that those are really difficult things to talk about in the moment because people don't want to talk about them or they don't understand them or they're not interested because the actual debate is what do we do now so it's yeah it's a tricky thing to kind of hold a balance on and you're you're guaranteed to get misunderstood by you know at least 30 percent of the population <laughs> at any given time i think so yeah but it's um it's I, I i've been trying to remind myself to keep that balance you know i wonder what is the role of myth um you know the tower of babel was brought up as well and you know, I'm curious, uh, I mean, you also mentioned the matrix, you know, earlier as well as sort of a more modern myth, but I wonder what is the role of myth in sort of in prophecy and warning that, you know, seems to have more of a I don't know, possibility of seeing differently or proceeding differently. Um, because like you said, I mean, the matrix could either be a warning, you know, 1999, the pinnacle year before everything changed, uh, or it could also be like a blueprint of like, Hey, this sounds like a good idea. Um, you know, sci-fi seems to occupy a lot of this range, but then of course, then there's old, older myths as well, which also seem to hold a kind of, you know, prophetic warning as well. And so I wonder what is the, uh, what could be the function or the value of bringing those forth to understand this moment and where we might go. I mean, to both of you, maybe Charles first. Yeah. Yeah, um, <clears throat> myths and, and stories that have a mythic resonance, like The Matrix, like um, how the Grinch stole Christmas, you know, they like fairy tales. Um, they communicate to people on multiple levels, and it's not even necessary always to understand them uh, on a on a superficial level. To like understand to be able to decode them to still get the to still receive the teaching of them and because they they get into the psyche and they, they work they work there and maybe understanding blooms years later um I, I think that the tower of babel myth tower of babel i'm not even trying to say it is is really a key myth of our time because it represents the the futility of the attempt to attain the infinite through finite means, the attempt to build a tower all the way to the sky, all the way to heaven. Because, and, and, and this is the um, conceit of technology and the machine, that if we only can bring all of matter under our control and measure everything, then we will be able to treat the whole world like a big max-min problem and you know, maximize happiness and we'll all live happily ever after. Once we've achieved the paradise of the complete datafication, the complete quantification and measurement and control of everything. But what we see happening in the pandemic as a glaring example of the futility of that is okay, we might, we can operate by minimizing everything that we think is important to measure like deaths or hospitalizations or cases. But when we do that, because of this hubris of thinking that we can encompass everything in our metrics, what gets left out of our measurements becomes degraded <clears throat> and can be lost. So, you know, is it, in the epidemiological conversation, is anybody talking about um, the, the uh, loneliness? Um, even things you could measure, addiction, depression, you can kind of measure those things. But can you measure like what is lost 
when children don't see smiles from their teachers and classmates. Like <clears throat> maybe, you know, theoretically, maybe their future psychological well-being or something like that. But I mean, come on, like there's a lot, the things that, that make life actually the most worth living are the things that are hard to measure or beyond measure entirely. We have a word for those things in the scientific age. Those are called spiritual. Those are called qualities, which in scientific ideology don't even really exist. If you can't reduce them to some set of quantities, they don't even exist. They're, they're illusions. So this, again, speaks to the vastness of the change that, that I've been working for and that a lot of people have been working for, whether consciously or not, um, to revalue the things that are, that are beyond measure, that we can never, through quantitative means, build all the way and reach them as building a tower to the sky, because you don't even need to, they're already available. And this is the one of the meanings of the Tower of Babel myth, um, you know, because you build and you build and, and gosh, we've gone so high, but the sky is just as far away as ever. A perfect society is just as far away as ever. Well, that must mean we need to build higher. And at some point, you know, in the, in the story, the tower didn't actually even collapse. Um, they just gave up the attempt. They started arguing with each other. They couldn't understand each other. Their, their, um, their knowledge broke down into mutually unintelligible specialties and subspecialties and academic disciplines. I think that's in the story. Uh, I mean, it's really, it speaks really to our time. And, and you know, the end of it might be that they gave up the building and looked around them and realized that the sky begins an inch off the ground, that the kingdom of heaven is already in us and around us, as some of the um, Gnostic gospels say. So, yeah. And I know, Paul, you, I know that, that you've um, you described yourself as a uh, former pagan and now um, go to an Orthodox Christian church. So I'm really curious you know, how you apply your your spirituality and um, to, to this kind of thing. Yeah, well, the, the mythology is the, the way to think about it, isn't it? I mean, this is, um, I have a good friend, Martin Shaw, who's a storyteller. Oh, yeah, um, I know Martin as well. And I think he does Martin. too. Yeah. Everybody yeah. knows Martin. Who, you should yeah. know Martin if you don't. And if you don't know him, you should look his work up. But Martin wrote a piece, uh, actually, I think he recorded a little film about it a year or so ago. And it was called, We're in the Underworld, but we don't realize it. Um, and that was long before the, the the passports and the rest of it came in. But he was just talking about the underworld journey in mythology, um, which is a journey that pretty much is it manifests in the stories of lots of different continents and cultures. You know, you are taken down into the underworld uh, and you have to be rescued at some point. And the underworld journey is hard, but it's also necessary because you learn things or you've gone down there to retrieve something or somebody that has been lost. Um, and it's a really interesting way to think about it. I, in, in this first essay I wrote about the vaccines or, or rather the moment around them, I talked about COVID as being apocalyptic in the literal meaning of the word, which in Greek is, is apocalypsis, which means things that are revealed. It means revelation, hence the last book of the Bible. And it doesn't mean the end of the world. It means something is going to be revealed. And so COVID as an agent, just this little virus is revealing so much about our societies and who we are 
good things and bad things, uh, who each of us is as an individual, uh, maybe the difference between what we thought we were and what we are. It's revealing a lot about the cultures we lived in. It's showing us a load of stuff that was there anyway, but we weren't really looking at it. And it's forcing us to look at them. And I think that's really interesting. Um, and I think that's exactly what's going on. This is an apocalyptic virus in exactly that sense. And long after the virus has become endemic and isn't much of a problem anymore, which presumably will happen because that's what happens with viruses, all of the things that have been revealed are still going to be there. Uh, and that's a useful process, actually, um, because a lot of what it's revealing is, is what the machine is. If you choose to look at it, a lot of people won't want to. Uh, and then those of us who do will draw different conclusions. So we can all argue about that. But it is a revelatory moment. Um, and yeah, in terms of the Christian story, well, you know, the more I understand ancient religions, the more I see that, you know, it's certainly an orthodox Christianity. And I don't think this is just true in that faith. You know, the, 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 the old saints and the, and the martyrs and the fathers and the mothers of the church, they had a, a very, very good understanding of human nature. They knew exactly what human beings were. And I think Christianity has a very psychologically advanced understanding of human nature. Um, and the story of the Tower of Babel comes quite soon after the fall. And the fall is uh, the point at which we are, you know, we are in this garden, okay? We're in this garden. Um, and this garden is on top of a mountain, actually, interestingly. So it's at a high point of the world. And it's bounded by a fence. It's a paradise. It's a fenced area. So it's a combination. It's almost, it's, it's, it's not quite tame and it's not quite wild. And everything is, is in communion in this garden. You've got God there. God is so close you can see him. All the creatures of the world, all the humans, or two of them, the first man and the first woman, and everything's available in this garden. And the only thing you don't do is eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil tree of technology the tree of the machine because you're not ready for the tree yet okay so at some point the story is that interestingly and this is a story actually that's reflected by what evolution shows us if you look at the seven days of creation humans come last so we're the newest thing and we're also the only thing at the end of every other day it says god saw that it was good but he didn't say that about humans he said it about everything else but he didn't say it about humans because we're not completed we're not completed yet um, and that's why we're not supposed to eat from the tree, because we're not going to be able to do it. We're not going to be able to manage the knowledge we get from the tree. But of course, we're tempted by the little serpent who's always there tempting us over our shoulder and we eat the tree and then we're expelled from the garden. And it's not God who expels us from the garden. It's the consequence of our own actions. So down we go. Uh, and then what do we have to do? We have to start farming. We have to start breaking the soil. We have to start building cities. We start dying. And what do we do to try and get back from that? We start to build a tower. We start to try and get back to the top of the mountain again, but through our own means, through the, through the knowledge that we gained. But we can't do it because we're not wise enough. And so we're always trying to build that tower and then it comes down. And that's what the machine is. It's a great story, you know, because we chose, we chose our own will over the will of God, which is also the will of nature. As, as, as C.S. Lewis used to put it, the Tao is the same thing as the will of God in his view. So, you know, we kind of know that that's the natural law. We can either follow that and be in communion with things to some to, to a broad degree, or we can try and grip and control everything through the machine. I've just been watching the Lord of the Rings films with my kids, and that's a fantastic modern manifestation. You know, you have the ring of power, the one ring. And what do you do with that? Well, you have to you have to destroy it. You have to throw that back into the mountain. And throughout that book, there are all these characters. There's Boromir and Faramir and various others. They want to take the ring for themselves and because they want to use it for good. Right? They want to save their kingdom from Sauron, the Dark Lord. And they're always saying, oh, you know, but I could use the ring for good. It's always men who do it as well. It's always humans who do this. And Gandalf is always saying, no, you can't do that. That's got to be destroyed. That ring of power 
that's the that's the machine again that's the technological imperative you might think you can use that for good but fundamentally that's going to corrupt you and you're going to end up in the shadow realm and so yeah all of these myths you know they, they've been telling us these things as charles says for thousands and thousands and thousands of years this is in that way it's not a new story we're living through it's just another manifestation of it and um yeah it's it's really it's i find it kind of nourishing to mm. think about that because it's mm. it takes your mind off some of the madness of the present you can see not just in the bible but in any old myth you choose to look at you can see this happening again and again and again here we go again so yeah there's there's things you can learn from that mm. yeah thanks paul um you know there's a piece in your part three of the essay series on the vaccine moment uh, we had this line too which phil speaks to this um which he said i think the corona moment highlights an ancient ongoing struggle between the spirit of the wild and the spirit of the machine. And this is a struggle that goes on inside all of us every minute uh, of the day. And that to me too, is that's very telling in the sense that this, this um, intuitive, I think what feels like an intuitive longing to be connected to, let's just call it the wild, right? But in a sense, the mystery, and you, you bring that up as well, that the, you know, the world isn't a machine, it's a mystery. And, and the impulse to try to control that mystery um, through, means of this technology the technology and so for me i'm i'm really curious to know like how to follow or or to again without reverting to some kind of romanticized past like how does one align with that wild spirit right in a way without going into cliches or you know i'm thinking even of course brave new world where i mean their entire culture bifurcates into you know the, the it feels like the technium and then the wild you know barbarians that's still outside the gate um, and is that actually what what this sort of heralds in a way as well, mythically and prophetically? Because it means it easy enough to split that, you know, that people were going to follow the machine or they're going to follow the spirit of the wild. I mean, that's simplifying it. But, yeah, I wonder how that um, stirs in you. I just, um, I don't want to plug my books, but I literally just wrote a novel about this. <laughs> and so it's funny, what I find I do with my writing is I... Um, I write something in fiction, then I seem to write the same thing again in nonfiction or the other way around, because I don't seem to have any other stories to tell. But it's a question, isn't it? I mean, I wrote this novel called Alexandria, which came out last year in the States and in Britain. And it's exactly that. It's set a thousand years in the future, actually. And it's about this this conflict between communities that have decided to stay with the wild and communities that have decided to effectively upload themselves to the to the technium. Um, and the conflict between that um, and how that plays out and the conversation. And one of the reasons I wrote it was that I wanted to explore what the conversation would look like. Um, and, and in that book, as in as in probably the world, most people have decided to, to leave. They've decided to leave the wild because it's hard work and it's messy and it's difficult and they'd rather be in, in the metaverse. But some people haven't. And, you know, I don't know if it's don't know if it breaks down as easily as that. But and, and in the, I'm trying to be quite nuanced about it in the book i suppose but it's um it's again it's you see it in all the sci-fi novels and you see it in the in, in the fantasy novels and you see it in the poetry of, of the centuries this kind of what actually is the division between the so-called machine and the so-called wild because they're both in us right i mean these are to some degree us conceptualizing things what's the division and how do you separate it out and, and what do you do once you get to the point where we are now where you have a very big very big, very sophisticated control civilization that you live in. What does it even mean to leave? I mean, um, you know, I have people, who, I, I have friends who've, who've, who've gone much further than me in, in trying to leave the machine, but there's, you know, it's it's always a matter of degrees. 
it's always a matter of degrees. You can't, you can't be, uh, you know, even even Ted Kaczynski in his cabin trying to escape the world out there um, with terrible consequences. He couldn't get out of it either. It's not possible to do it. So it's a, maybe it's about the relationship you have with it inside yourself as much as where you are. Um, you know what what you consider yourself to be serving. You know who are you serving? What are you serving? And how do you how do you have that relationship? But uh, it's it's also something that's intensely personal. You know, there's, everybody's going to have their own different different response to that. But it's the big question, and more and more people ask me all the time. Actually, like, how do you live? How do you get out of this? Can you get out of this? What does it mean? And it's a it's an open question. Yeah. Mm. You know, Charles. Yeah, I see you nodding a lot, and you know, I I wonder. To me, at least, um, I heard this shade or this in your work, this sense of the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible, right? It seems to sort of triangulate some other attunement, right? To some other possibility. And yeah, I wonder if you yeah. can speak to that. Well, first, uh, when when Paul was talking about, somehow when Paul was talking, the, the image of uh, Henry David Thoreau came up, you know, uh, I guess it was when you mentioned Kaczynski in his cabin, you know, Thoreau went out into his cabin with much better results than Ted Kaczynski <laughs> from a literary point of view anyway. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people don't know that that one reason that he was able to do so well in his little cabin was that his mother would come by quite frequently and bring him, you know, home cooked meals. So he wasn't actually that far this, outside. This Thoreau, you're saying? Thoreau, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And 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 so there's, you know, I think that like Paul was saying, it's not um, an all or nothing proposition. Uh, you know, are you going to live in the machine? Are you going to live with technology or not? But I think that there are. Um, a series of off ramps from the, um, you know, super highway toward complete integration of biology and technology, of society and technology, and and those. So, like the Amish, for example, in um, North America, all over, not just Pennsylvania, they they're certainly not pre-technological people but they made a conscious decision to eschew certain kinds of technology and not others. And the, the, the criteria that they use um, to decide what technologies to accept and what not to accept, I think is very illuminating. They, they don't accept things that are going to weaken the fabric of their community. So no telephones in their houses, because then they won't visit each other anymore but they can have telephones in their production facilities for customers to call them from outside the community. Uh, so so <clears throat> I think that the question isn't so much like, do we, do we or how do we uh, reverse the course of the machine? But what if we accept the reality of the machine and the purposiveness of the gifts that we have been given by the giver of our gifts and ask the question, well, what is the machine actually for? And what are the gifts of technology and reason and the ordering of reality into categories uh, and into time? These are all unique human qualities. Other species don't have them, at least not anywhere near to the degree we do. And, and so by the principle of ecology that every species gifts are 
uh, in service <clears throat> to the ecosystem, <clears throat> in service to creation, then we can ask, well, what are what is what are our gifts for, and what is the machine for? Especially given its inevitability on the foundation of of um, and this Paul was speaking to this before too, like the QR codes. I mean, it's kind of inevitable in a sense, but it's not inevitable what we use them for. And so if we can come, if we can arrive at a collective um, agreement about what, a, it really it comes down to what Wendell Berry says, what is a human being for? That is a mythological question. Myth answers that question and nothing else. And the old myth of, you know, we are here to dominate and conquer Okay, you know, and to and to subsume everything into quantity and to build a tower to heaven. That is an answer, and it's not the only answer. And I think that where I see the most hope today is in the emergence of a different mythology that, um, you know, not to reduce it too much, but that says that our gifts are here to contribute to life and beauty on earth and maybe beyond. And when, <clears throat> when we conceive of it in that way, the effect of the machine on the non-human other and on human society will become very, very different. If that's the operating question, does it contribute to life and beauty? And we infuse that into our, into our thinking, into our economics and everything else then it becomes something very different. And some of these questions of how do we reverse it and, and how much is too much, they become irrelevant in that, in that context. Mm. Well, I'm curious, yeah, what stirs for you hearing that? Yeah, really interesting. I mean, it's, I, we all like to talk about the Amish. I would love to actually spend some time with the Amish one day, but it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's exactly right. The other thing about the Amish, of course, is they have a deep religious commitment. And that's the thing that makes their community work, actually. Um, and again, to come back to Jonathan Haidt, who I mentioned earlier, he did a he, he quoted a study in his book, The Righteous Mind, which talked about intentional communities. And there was a study that was a long term study done of intentional communities around the world from the 60s onwards for several decades. Um, and it was trying to find out which ones failed and which ones succeeded. And most of them failed. Um, because intentional communities actually tend to be made up with, made up of sort of uh, bloody-minded eccentrics like us who want to leave society, but not necessarily for the same reasons. And so often they end up fighting with each other about various things. It's a difficult thing to make work. And you know, communities evolve usually in, in history. They don't get made deliberately, uh, certainly not ideologically. But the ones that work are religious ones. They're, what, they're ones where people share the same faith or they have the same spiritual commitment because they're doing they're committing themselves to something higher they're not even just trying to create say you know a good place here which is a good enough thing to do but they have something that keeps them going and it strikes me that that's what is true with the amish too the amish are not simply trying to say well let's try and live well without technology because it's intrusive they're saying how should we serve god how does god want us to serve him and that's their answer to that and they have a very particular manifestation of, of christianity um and they're, they're, they maintain it, and the, the principles that they have there are in service to something very much higher than themselves. Um, and it, and it's, that's what keeps them together. And you know, they're extremely religious, regular Bible readings, regular church going. And what's interesting as well about the Amish is that they, they do have this, 
year, don't they, where they let their children, teenage children, go out into the world and choose whether to come back again. So it's not like a cult that forces them to stay. And apparently in most places, most of them come back. And I read somewhere recently, I don't know if this is true, that the Amish are one of the fastest growing communities in America um, because they're big on family and they have big families. Um, so what you've got there, actually, if you look at a community like that, is all the things that traditionally held a community together. Focus on family, focus on tradition and community, uh, limiting technology for the good of community. Like Charles says, they're not just technophobes. They will adopt things that are useful to them as a community, but reject those which aren't. And a strong faith. And all around the world, actually, those are the things that have kept traditional communities alive. So the more that I look at that, the more that I think, well, you know what, maybe there was something in the way that all these traditional communities worked that perhaps we shouldn't have taken apart so quickly yeah. and replaced with individualism and technology. Um, and so when it comes to new mythologies, they have to be created. I think they're sewn together from your relationship to place, your relationship to earth and nature and your relationship to God, whatever that means to you. You know, it doesn't mean you're going to be a Christian or be an Amish or be in the Amish necessarily, but... I think that if you don't believe there's something higher than you at work, then you're going to be very, very much more tempted. In fact, it makes perfect logical sense to create a machine to rebuild everything in your image. Because why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? I mean, if, if this earth is just random matter and everything has no meaning at all, then why wouldn't you want to try and live forever? Because there's nothing else. And why wouldn't you want to remake nature in your own image? Because it's all random anyway. Uh, and you're random too, and everything's meaningless. So let's just try and create a machine to rebuild the whole thing in the way that we currently want to rebuild it. So it, it comes down again and again and again to this spiritual core that I think that we've we've rejected too quickly. And if there's a lesson in the machine, it's that this is what happens if you do that. You know, it's a very unfashionable message <laughs> in the modern West. But you know, hey, what? Hey, guys, if you reject God and you decide there's nothing higher than yourself, this is where you're going. And uh, there we are. So I'm not confident at all that the, the direct direction of travel could be wisely managed because I think that we're wielding the ring of power. Um, hmm. So, you know, it does make sense to have some form of secession from that, whether it's practical or spiritual or internal or whatever it is. To say to yourself, I'm, you know, I'm, to some degree anyway, I'm going to have some criteria here which decide, you know, the Amish would be a good example again whether they're spiritual or personal or psychological or practical, what are my criteria for deciding what I'm going to participate in and what I'm not? And that seems to be a good, maybe a good way of thinking about it. But Charles might have some thoughts on that as well. Mm -hmm. oh, I was just, you brought up the ring of power a couple of times now. And um, <laughs> I've been watching. I, I, well, I invoked the ring of power also in, in one of my essays uh, not too long ago um, with a uh, slightly different application of it of that symbol but but close um where i likened it to the the um tactic of invoking mob hysteria against your enemies through dehumanizing them through casting them as evil casting them as monsters and um you know unleashing the force of the mob, which is based on judgment and othering. And, and, you know, it's tempting to use those powers to make our enemies look really bad. And part of that even is like earlier, you were, earlier you were talking about how conspiracy theorizing is not necessary to explain what's happening today. I fully agree with that, which doesn't mean that there aren't conspiracies, but I think that they um, tend to 
be more symptoms than root causes of the current um, debacle. Um, so, but so so the conspiracy narrative also is a use of the ring of power because it says here are these horrible uh, humans who we could, if we could take them down and destroy them, then the problem would be solved. So that basic mindset of cleansing evil, that in it, that itself is the ring of power. And it's, it is very powerful. So yeah, like maybe we could destroy Bill Gates and Anthony Fauci if we inflame the public to the degree that by, you know, that they, they're, they're so angry at the pedophilia elite and so forth, and we tear them down. But nothing is going to change if in the whole process we've done, we've affirmed again and again, the, the, the idea that the solution to a problem is to find the bad guys and destroy them, which is a very distilled version of the mentality of the machine, which is the mentality of control. It's the same also as the mentality behind um, Corona, uh, COVID public health measures. Okay, how do we control this thing? Where's the bad guy? How do we destroy or isolate, contain the bad guy? This whole mentality is itself the ring of power. Um, so maybe I am kind of saying something very, very similar to what you are, but but it is, wow, a, such a potent symbol in our time. Well, either way, as soon as you wield it, it starts to consume you. That's, that's basically- And then you become the new Dark Lord. Absolutely, you do. Yeah. yeah, you go into the shadow yeah. realm, and you don't even know what you are anymore. Yeah, yeah. exactly. You know, I uh, I realized too we're we're sort of getting to the last chapter of our conversation here, and I'm really appreciating it. And one of the questions that's left I'm left with, um, particularly around this sense of, um, like where where is the mythological, you know, currents pulling, you know, the possibilities of the future, and. On the one hand, I feel like I'm tracking. There's this. Um, I'm sure both of you probably read the the article it came out about a year ago. It talked about conspirituality, but it essentially spoke to right this idea that there's this two pulses in in society. Right, there's this pull towards this ecstatic, utopic, you know, future, which you know constellates as uh, an idea of mass enlightenment or you know mass revelation, essentially like a positive, unifying moment. And then there's this shadow, right? Which is sort of this, you know, the shadow elite, one world government, new world order, the great reset. And they seem to sort of fall into these two lines and that they actually correspond in this case. I think the article was making the case to like, um, I think it was called schizotypical personality types that are sort of like less willing to kind of maybe hover in the middle, but they, they sort of both um, sides of these though, of course, represent two sides of the same sort of holistic um, uh, impulse. But my question then is, you know, Paul, for example, you've spoken about this with the collapse of the, essentially the Christian story in the West being replaced by progress and, and sort of modernity in this faith and technology. Uh, and Charles, again, speaking of this idea of this pulse or this longing towards the more beautiful world, like I'm really curious to how, how to constellate around a different unifying principle. Like, how does a society then find another unifying principle or unifying mythology? Because again, any attempts it feels like towards a one mythology, even from the, you know, the the light crowd, right? Or say, you know, we're all one, you know, one Earth, one planet, and it feels good in the sense, you know, when those anthems come out. 
Um, and at the same time, they also sort of ride on the back of, well, the only way to pull that off is, is this techno controlled civilization. And so, you know, another example just I'll say is um, I've, I've often looked to the symbol of say the flower of life, which seems to be a lot of interlocking circles, right? Which create a sort of unity in a, in a distinction as well as a sort of possibility of a, you know, symbol of a culture that doesn't quote, have to believe the same thing, but they are at least coherent with each other, you know, of all being aligned towards, towards what, like, that's what I'm curious about. What is that unifying possibility? Yeah, well, I'm really interested in that. Um, I just, in this last essay, I wrote, I talked about the Great Reset with the dastardly Klaus Schwab and his evil plans. Um, and I actually read his book on the subject, which is disappointingly boring um, and not, not evil at all. But I mean, if you read, <laughs> this is the whole point, right? I mean, the whole, if, if, you, if, if, you, if you look at the way that sort of globalist minded people talk, and I've been looking at it for 20 years, you know, uh, the sort of people who run the World Economic Forum, and the WTO and the rest of it, they have a they have a unified vision and that's they think that the that they genuinely believe and i've spoken to a lot of these people they genuinely believe they're quite evangelical about it that global markets will deliver this universal oneness right so there is a there is a a, a, a very co there is a there is a big unifying story which actually both sides of the story sometimes like to want to avoid between the sort of the new age oneness crowd in some way the john lennon imagine crowd and then the, the the masters of the global capitalist universe i mean they genuinely do believe that the, you know they are creating one world maybe for different reasons but that their unifying narrative is the way forward so if you read the sort of stuff that klaus schwab writes or watch some of his speeches about the great reset or the great narrative as he calls it now he seems to have rebranded it i mean that's that's the story it's on offer right i mean he's actually literally the world economic forum have just launched this thing called the great narrative which is all about a new story for humanity and it is about how the world must be more sustainable it must be more equitable there must not be any racism there must not be any slavery all of the good things right things that are good uh, there must not be any climate change and let's assume that these people are genuine about this and they believe that the way to do this is progress growth global capitalism more marketplaces more borderlessness all the story we know so they connect that sort of universalist story um and yeah it can be used by almost anybody to to push that agenda. So, you know, I think when you start talking about unifying narratives, you have to start saying, well, firstly, you say, who are we, right? Mm -hmm. So we say, well, society needs a story. Well, firstly, who's society? I mean, what do we mean by that? Do we mean a nation? Well, I mean, a lot of nations are very diverse and have lots of people arguing within them. Um, do we mean the whole world is gonna somehow get together? Well, there's 190 nations in the world and they're very different to each other. They're unlikely to agree on anything anytime soon. Do we believe that even the people on this, on this call here would have the same desire for the same unifying vision? Probably not. Um, and I think that that's, you know, in some ways that notion of we need a unifying vision is part of the sort of machine trap, you know, that we're all going to get together and agree on the same thing. Mm. And I'm not sure that we have to. I think that a better way to do it is to find people who share your vision, which you believe to be true, and then try to work it out, try to make it real, try to make it live, which is what the Amish do to come back to them, um, you know, and follow your truth and not necessarily expect other people to want to follow it as well. I mean, if it, if, if you want to follow it, if it's true, people will follow it. That's how it seems to me. I mean, the history of the early Christian church is interesting, whether or not you're a Christian. If you look at the first couple of centuries of Christianity, this weird little cult from the Middle East that nobody expected to survive spreads across the whole of the Roman Empire long before it was adopted by the emperors. So it didn't spread through power and it didn't spread through evangelizing because people hardly did any evangelizing. There weren't lots of missionaries going out. And it's, a, as I say, weird little religion in Roman terms. So why did it work? Well, the reason it spread was that Christians were living in a certain way 
and that people wanted to emulate them. They were actually living the way Christians were supposed to live. They were helping the poor and they were bringing refugees into their houses and they were loving their neighbors rather than hating them. And when they were killed in the arena, they were hugging each other first. And people would look at these people and say, wow, this is quite interesting. I wonder what they're like. And that's actually how the church spread. So that's just a Christian example. But it's one example of how you actually create a community that's built around what you believe to be true. And it is, which is that you live it, you know, and that's what Tolstoy showed us. And that's what Gandhi showed us. And that's what people, Guru Nanak of the Sikh tradition showed us. It's all the same story in that sense. So I don't think we should start with the notion that we have to somehow intellectually construct a big story that everyone's got to agree with. That's just, that's machine thinking again. What we should do is follow what we believe, genuinely believe the truth to be, serve the higher purpose that we think needs to be served. And then trust in it actually that's what faith is which is very hard it's easy for me to say i'm not very good at it but you know i think that's the way it is that's that's the conclusion i'm coming to mm. so yeah that's 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 sort of my two pennies on that mm. yeah that, that's a really interesting tie-in paul to um our last mini conversation about about story and where what's the origin of stories uh because i do think that there is actually a great, great story and a unifying vision and and an attractor that we are turning our gaze toward and wishing to walk toward. But I do not think that it is something that human beings create. I do not think that we have to write a new story because the story is already there. The story is already there. And the whole, as Paul was saying, like the whole um, methodology of to create something, you start with a blueprint, you start with first principles, and you reason your way up from that. That's the Tower of Babel as well. Hmm. And it, it depends on the vision of the, the world and reality outside yourself as being devoid of intelligence. So, of course, we have to write the story ourselves because it doesn't inhere in the cosmos already. Um, we have to actually, what it's saying is to take the role upon ourselves of God. And so I guess like on some meta level, if there is a new story that that I want to tell, it subverts that whole way of thinking. And it says that we're not the only intelligence in the world and that therefore the process of creation in the human realm even is not a process of imposition, but it is a process of participation and listening and recognition. So we can work toward this, whatever you want to call it, new story that, that emerges as we discover it. We can work toward this future. We can work toward this vision without actually knowing what it is, at least not in concepts. And in fact, recognizing that any concepts that we try to cage it within will reduce it to less than what it really is. So it's a posture of humility and awe in the face of the magnificence of the mystery. And, and as we gaze upon the mystery in these little glimpses that we have, as it breaks out into reality in the form of um, special experiences, you know, like sometimes I have this, this have some experience, experience and I'm like, some interaction with somebody maybe, or I witness something, I'm like, yeah, this is part of it. This is that future shining through into the present. Um, so, so as long as we, we hold that gaze, then it provides some kind of guidance. 
and the little pieces of the story start coming together in a process of creation that utilizes us as its tools, as it bootstraps into reality, but which is certainly not subject, subjugated to human will. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And um, I mentioned my friend Martin Shaw, the storyteller earlier, he has this phrase he likes to use. He says, uh, the stories we needed arrived perfectly on time 5,000 years ago. And I like that. Um, I wrote this uh, little manifesto on civilization 10 years ago, the Dark Mountain Manifesto. And in that, we talked about needing new stories. And I think we were wrong about that, actually. And uh, it was meeting Martin and, and amongst a number of other things, including becoming Christian, that taught me that. We don't need any new stories because the story is already here. And the problem with modernity is we forgot it. And the story is that you exactly do that. You orientate yourself towards truth, which from a Christian perspective is orientating yourself through God which is what Christ showed to God, as which is what Christ shows you how to do. Um, but there, there are other perspectives on how to do that in other faiths as well. But if you don't understand that the truth is there already and that it's bigger than you, then I think then you do exactly construct the Tower of Babel with your mind, which is exactly what we think we can do. Um, we don't construct the stories. We serve them. Exactly that. We serve the stories. And that's what faith is. So you try to live every day by the truth that you think you know, and you try to serve that higher thing and exactly that charles you see that you know you get little glimpses of things coming together at the same time as you understand that you can't grasp the whole of the mystery it's not graspable actually it's not graspable but you can you can you can know what the path is to some degree but the minute you start to think right we need a new story everybody let's sit down and write one then <laughs> you're back right at the beginning again you're you're laying the first brick of the new tower so yeah exactly that Mm. In other words, of uh, uh, another guest I've had on the series, Pat McCabe, who um, I know Charles knows and maybe Paul too, but you know, on this question of you know what might be the gifts, what might be the the possibility of putting these gifts in service, um, she has this phrase. She says to be the architects of the dream, something like that. Which you know, again, I just feel like has some sense of that that possibility um, rather than you know the architects of I don't know the technium or something. The, the sense of control. Um, I'm feeling deeply grateful for our time here today with both of you, a special conversation. Um, I wonder, yeah, is there anything left to to leave the listeners here with, you know, before we close our conversation today? Well, I think we've solved all the problems of the world in the last hour and a half, actually. I'm not sure there's anything to add. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm feeling feeling good about, about the conversation. Thanks for bringing us together, Ian, for initiating this. Um, yeah well yeah thanks to all of you for listening again online this will be shared widely in a variety of formats you know after the fact and um yeah i wonder as we uh have just you know spilled over from the darkest time of the year again at least in the northern hemisphere um may you find find your light the source um, in you as you carry yourself through in these times so thank you to both of you and um onward we go yeah, thank you, Ian, and thanks for everybody who who came to watch. And thanks for all the comments, by the way, which have appeared down the side. And I haven't. Oh gosh, I haven't even looked at those. <laughs> Huge amounts of things to think oh, about. So, okay. <laughs> thanks. It's it's been great.